0: Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and, more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The United States, Mexico and Canada Trade Agreement, or better known as USMCA, went into effect in July of this year. To talk about the principles and the goals that guided its creation versus the old NAFTA, the benefits and limits of the North American market, the issues behind the recent supply chain disruptions, the importance of protecting jobs and livelihoods, and why Mexico matters to the United States that it is truly my privilege to welcome Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, former US trade representative and the mastermind behind this agreement. He also spearheaded the US-China phase one economic and trade agreement and the South Korean and Japan agreements. Ambassador Lighthizer served as deputy USTR during the Reagan administration and practiced trade law for more than 30 years. He's an experienced trade negotiator and a litigator. Ambassador Lightheiser, it is a true pleasure to have you on the show with us today. The new USMCA went into effect in July of this year, and many have called it the strongest and most advanced trade agreement ever negotiated. As the architect of USMCA, what were the principles that guided you and what does it aim to accomplish versus the old NAFTA?
1: Well, thank you. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here, Ariana. I'm aware of your work and I'm I'm pleased to be a part of it now. So let's remind ourselves where we were a few years ago, right? NAFTA was a very unpopular agreement in the United States. You'll recall it was very difficult to get passed through it was never favored by workers, ever. Agriculture, some agriculture appreciated it. But overall, we had an agricultural deficit with Mexico also. All right. In 1988, we entered into an agreement with Canada, uh, and then that led to negotiations at Mexico. Canada was a very different kind of an agreement because the Canadian economy is, is similar to ours. So that's where we were. You recall Ross Perot and all of this kind of business. Finally, the thing passes. It goes into effect. And then we have, a, uh, over a, a short period afterwards, a, a substantial devaluation of the peso, right? So now the economics of it change even, even more than what was predicted. And so then you, you fast forward, you see trade deficits go up. You see economic difficulty in Mexico. And you see politicians opposing it just right down the line. Just to remind ourselves, when Hillary Clinton ran against President Obama, when they were both candidates for the Democratic Party, they both said they were renegotiated. You know, Obama came in and didn't do anything. And, and then when uh, President Trump ran against Secretary Clinton, once again, they both said they were renegotiated. Uh, the difference was President Trump was the one who, was at, who actually was gonna do it. So it was a complicated relationship that we had. We had trade deficits going up. And probably the sector that was most affected was the automobile sector. So the way I like to think of it, originally, for the first several years, and and you know far better than I do what was going on in Mexico over those 25 years, right? There was political issues, there were economic issues, there was a lot going on. Maybe 10 years or so before we started to negotiate, Mexico started focusing not so much just on these but on bringing the United States auto industry and some of the uh, Asian companies down to Mexico. And that really meant that before we started renegotiating, eight of the previous 10 or so automobile plants in North America were built in Mexico, largely to sell to the United States. So it it was a bad situation from our point of view. Auto parts companies were going down there, Literally, the good side for Mexico was hundreds of thousands of jobs were created over that brief period of time in the auto sector. So what did we want to do? One, we wanted to rebalance. And two, we wanted to upgrade. And I think we really did end up with what could only be called the best trade agreement, the biggest, strongest trade agreement. It has, it has the most innovative provisions on digital trade and intellectual property, It has provisions on currency. It's got provisions on labor, which we probably ought to talk about. They're really, really important, both in your political scheme, but also in our political scheme. It has rules of origin changes, particularly in the automobile industry, which we can talk about, which was designed to drive more manufacturing to the United States, but also to the region because Mexico more and more was starting to be a country that we import from China, modify and ship to the United States. So that was something that, you know, that was not appreciated by us. So I wanted more North American manufacturing, more North American workers. I wanted movement of some of this manufacturing back to the United States. and then we, And then we wanted to modernize. We also put in place a couple of provisions that are unusual probably some others you'll want to talk about, what, but we we put in place something called a performance review or a sunset, which requires us to, to look at this again so that we don't find ourselves again with a an agreement that's 25 years old and that no one knows what to do with. So in any event, that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to rebalance. We wanted to modernize the relationship, by the way, both with Canada and with Mexico. And it's probably worth saying, analytically, This agreement is really an agreement between the United States and Canada, an agreement between the United States and Mexico. There's not a lot of trade between Mexico and Canada. That's, you know, this idea of the great North American market is a little bit uh, untrue. It really is the United States with Canada and the United States with Mexico and not much going the other way. So anyway, those are what we were trying to do.
0: Ambassador, before I move forward and ask you about some of the things you just mentioned, such as the labor and the environmental provisions or the performance review or China, let me just ask you one more question. Looking back, is there anything you wish you had done differently?
1: You know, I think of that from time to time. I would say probably not. I think we got what is the best deal from the point of view of the United States, and yet still didn't sacrifice the benefits of a North American market, because there are benefits to that. Uh, it was just, it was getting to the point where it was becoming very unbalanced. So, so I think that, that, that we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. I'm sure there are different things that we wish we had not compromised on, and I'm sure Mexico and Canada both have the same view, but I think everyone got what they needed. We maintained the market, and you know we'll see it's now a living document it's one that will change from time to time and it will it will stay modern
0: ambassador let me ask you about supply chains from a north american perspective we are feeling its effects throughout the economy affecting inflation energy prices lack of key components bottlenecks among many among many others american companies are looking for greater diversification and resiliency And supply chain security is also now a government priority. How do you see the future of supply chains? And did you conceive USMCA as an opportunity for nearshoring into North America?
1: You know, that's a big question. First of all, I have said on the record many times, including to the president of Mexico, that we view ourselves, I view us at least, as having a stake in Mexico's prosperity. And they certainly have one in ours, right? The principal advantage that Mexico has, besides a young, strong, uh, smart workforce, is proximity to the United States, right? That really is the most important single thing they have, and they're using it. On the supply chain question generally, I'll, I'll be honest, I am modestly sympathetic, not totally sympathetic. The real problem is we have too many bloody imports into the United States. So you say people say there's bottlenecks at the ports. There's bottlenecks at the ports, not for exports, but for imports. They're sending the ships out empty. So to me, I have a little different take. I think we ought to be importing a heck of a lot less than we're importing right now. And we ought to be exporting more. Now, clearly, some of what is done in Asia can and in my judgment should be done in Mexico. But but I'm not one who thinks that massive amounts of our jobs need to go to Mexico. I still want the jobs in the United States. That's my objective. But but I think that you talk to a lot of particularly high tech manufacturing companies, American companies, a lot of them think they can do in Mexico what they do in Asia. And if that happens, that is certainly better for the United States and certainly better for Mexico. And it does address this issue of supply chains because you can take those trains across, you're not gonna have the kind of uh, bottlenecks that you otherwise would have. But to me, supply chains comes down to too many damn imports. It it comes down to too many smart US manufacturers um, reading papers from 25 year old McKinsey kids who are telling them to to move their manufacturing to Asia and then not realizing there was a risk in there or the the amount of risk in there. And this was something that was coming and I believe, whether we had this pandemic or not. This was a problem that was heading, uh, you know, a train that was heading towards the wall either way. And hopefully the result of it will be a more diversified supply chain, more manufacturing in the United States and the shift from some parts of Asia to Mexico.
0: In a recent piece you wrote for The Economist, You speak about your concerns about the accumulated deficits, as well as about your concerns about America being the largest importer in the world. Do you conceive a United States being able of producing a lot of the things you're currently importing at competitive prices, or will the U.S. need to increase prices and probably pass them along to the consumer?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, just before you say anything else, We consume too much in the United States. One of the reasons we consume too much is because, in spite of our economic situation, our currency stays too strong, right? So imports are cheap. Why does our currency stay too strong? Why doesn't it adjust to the fact that we have these massive, we could have a trillion dollar trade deficit this year, a trillion dollar trade deficit. Why is that? The dollar doesn't adjust, and it doesn't adjust because we're the reserve currency. It doesn't adjust because of safe haven effects. You can see it in Mexico. If there's a crisis in Mexico, Mexicans with money are going to want to buy dollars, just as a hedge against the crisis in Mexico. The same thing happens in Asia. It happens in Europe. It happens everywhere. So we are without question consuming way too much, we are without question importing too much. Now, uh, another thing I mentioned in that article, and this is the real crisis, because these economists say, well, it doesn't matter, it all washes out in the end. No, it doesn't wash out in the end. In the end, those dollars, that trillion dollars is going to come back to the United States in the form of foreigners purchasing U.S. assets. So what they're really getting is they're getting the future value of a part of the U.S. economy. And that money is going overseas. That money is never coming back to the United States. So you look at the negative net investment of the United States, it's $15 trillion, probably be $16 trillion next year. And if you put a a negative compounding or a dynamic analysis into that, that number, even if we didn't have any more transfer, would grow every year because the future growth, the future profits of our assets, are going overseas to help China build its military, do its own innovation, to help Mexico. So the United States has got to stop that, in my judgment, just without question. Now you say at competitive prices, I get this all the time from economists. And my view is, is it really, is there any social value in the United States to having your third television set cost 180 bucks? No, there literally is none. Is there any to the fact that your t-shirts are $3 cheaper? No. The objective economists would tell us of economic policy, which includes trade policy, is to get the cheapest stuff. And my point always is, no, that's not the objective. The objective is to have strong communities, strong families, happy people, parents to stay together, children who do better than their parents and who are optimistic. That's the objective it's not just cheap stuff. And in many ways, having a lot of cheap stuff cuts against all those things that I just said, which are fundamental values. So I think the economists, they're they're playing and worrying about consumer prices and efficiency. And that's nice. That's like a third or fourth tier issue. They're ignoring all the one, two, three, four, five issues. So to me, I have no sympathy for this thing. Now, clearly, these things are nuanced and you don't want you know, the average person's car to cost $100,000, right? Because then you'd have you'd have problems, family problems. But the reality is the difference between that car costing $32,000 and $35,000 is zero effect. And the same thing with most of the other things we consume. So you buy one less television every couple of years. So you buy two less dresses every couple of years. Who cares? It has no effect on any of the things that matter to, to Americans. And I would suggest the same thing is true in Mexico. The same thing is true. It's the purpose of these policies is to have strong families, strong communities, a healthy country. That's the purpose. It's not just cheap stuff.
0: I'd love to go deeper and ask you more about this notion of the U.S. importing and consuming way too much, and also about the wealth transfer into other countries that you just described. However, Ambassador, let me focus on another concept that has been important to you and that has been reflected in USMCA. The treaty includes labor provisions that aim to improve the conditions of the Mexican worker so that they can compete more fairly with those in the United States. Do you think these provisions will help accomplish this goal? So
1: let me say, first of all, that you and your listeners know more about what goes on in Mexico than I do you know, by a um, hundred times. So I wanna confess that I have my own thoughts, my own analysis, but your people are the experts on what goes on in Mexico and, and, and your listeners have ideas that are better than mine. All right, now having said that, let's think of a couple things. Number one, I always go back to the history. The notion of NAFTA was that workers in Mexico were gonna start converging on the wages in the United States. If you go back and do an analysis, and I did this, and this is more or less accurate, if you hadn't had the, the devaluations of the peso, Mexican workers would be making much more than they are right now. I mean, those devaluations change it, and I mean, orders of magnitude better, many, many times better. So that's the one thing. The second thing is, what's my interest in this? I don't want U.S. workers to have to compete with workers who have an unhealthy, unfair relationship to their employers. That makes it harder for my guys and gals to compete. So that's, that's my take in it. What happens in Mexico after that is up to Mexico. But what, what, the way we analyze things in, in Mexico, and this is changing, is that there are a series of unions that negotiate contracts with companies without any input at all from the workers, and the result is you get these, these, these horrible protection contracts, and the result is you do not have the union bosses benefit, the companies benefit, and the workers basically suffer. And we wanted to break that up because we thought it was unfair to our workers. The Mexican government wanted to break it up. And I mean both the, the PNATO and, of course, the, the AMLO governments wanted to break it up because it's unfair to Mexican workers. And the net of it is we have your labor reform, we have it locked in and we have a mechanism that will force you if you want the benefits of USMCA to actually implement what you said you were gonna do. And that is to say, redo all these contracts, let these other unions come in, which are far more in my judgment, at least worker oriented, let them come in, let them have a try and get wages and working conditions up in Mexico. So. That's more or less the way we said, do I think it'll happen? I think that, that the provisions are in place so that it will happen. Now, can corruption in Mexico slow that down? Yes, but well, I'm not an expert on corruption in Mexico. But I certainly think that, that you know, President López Obrador is going to do what he can to have it work out for Mexican workers, and we'll see. But I can assure you, the United States government certainly under Trump, but also under President Biden, will bring actions to insist that Mexico do what they said they were going to do in that agreement. And you know we have this rapid response mechanism in there where it's not going to be one of these things where you file a government claim and six years later, nothing's happened. You know, 90 days, 120 days, there will be severe penalties on the company if it doesn't do what it says it's going to do. And if the government of Mexico doesn't do what it says it's going to do, the United States government can take an action against them. And I think you'll see real enforcement in this area. And that's a real improvement because you'll recall labor and environment both were unenforced BS side agreements in NAFTA. And now they're in there, they're enforceable, and they're real.
0: You just mentioned the environment. USMCA incorporates the constitutional changes that were made in Mexico during the 2013 energy reform. However, the Lopez Obrador administration has taken a series of actions that run counter to it, such as the closing of private gasoline storage facilities just recently. And now he wants to go even further further by pushing for a counter energy reform that would put the state in control of the industry. It would eliminate independent regulators, affect billions in investments, and destroy a nascent wind and solar industry, among other things. However, thus far, there has been very limited to no response from the United States, except from an outcry from the private sector. Ambassador, what are the tools in USMCA to guarantee enforcement?
1: So it is the position of the United States, at least it was the Trump administration, and I think it's it has to be of the Biden administration that your energy reforms were walked in in this agreement. It's just not arguable. They clearly are. It's also, of course, true his, historically that uh, President López Obrador has always been really, really big on nationalizing energy, getting Pemex back to where it was in, in the in the 70s, all of which, uh, in my judgment, at least, is not particularly in the interest of Mexico or Mexican efficiency. But once again, that's a Mexican question. But if the question is, is it a violation of USMCA, it is my judgment that it is. And there's two things that can happen. And once again, these are very tactical things. and It doesn't mean that everything's a violation, but these are technical issues. Two things can happen. One, we got rid of investor state dispute settlement or limited it substantially with Mexico, but not in the energy area. So there is ISDS a process that can go forward. People that have contracts with the, Mex- the Mexican government in these areas can enforce their rights through arbitration, and, they, and this is serious. The second way is to go state to state, and this will be up to the Biden administration. Do they want to do something? They also have a hostility towards energy companies and the whole energy industry, both because they don't like the companies, but also because of the hydrocarbon issue and environment. So it's it's complicated what they'll do. They will have to make a decision to bring a state to state dispute settlement process. Once again, it's probably premature now, right? Because you don't really have things in place at this time. But when there is a problem, they will have to make that decision. It's a reasonably quick process if they make it, I guess. I would be surprised if they didn't take the action because it's such a clear case, but they might not. Who knows? It's a political judgment. And they'll have to weigh the consequences of that on their own politics. But the ISDS provision, the investor state about that goes forward independently. Uh, and I think you will see that happen when things start getting into place and there really are negative consequences for U.S. investment in these sectors in Mexico.
0: Ambassador, let me ask you your experience in this. Back in 2018, when the Mexican administration was unable or unwilling to cooperate with the Trump administration to curb migration flows in our southern border, the U.S. was able to use important leverage to encourage a mutually beneficial outcome. To date, as you said, the current administration appears to be taking a more passive approach vis-à-vis Mexico, and Some people are even interpreting this as weakness. Can you tell us your experience back then?
1: Well, let me say first of all, I I made this point, but I'll make it more clearly. I have always said we have a stake in Mexicans' prosperity, but Mexico has a stake in our prosperity. And doing things, particularly in the immigration front, or not doing things, is bad For Mexico, it's also bad for our prosperity, and that has a doubling-down effect on its negativity in Mexico. So in the Trump administration, there was a clear view that, that Mexico was not taking appropriate steps. Keep in mind, you had a very new government in a very difficult situation. You had transition, so it was complicated, right? but there clearly was the view that they were not doing appropriate things to stop that illegal immigration coming in and President Trump threatened to put tariffs in place. And we got a good response. We, we got a good response in part because of the threats, but also because it it allowed the new administration to demonstrate to the Mexican people that they had to do something to maintain this very important economic relationship. So it it helped, it helped them justify doing something that wasn't going to be an easy thing to do. You see it really far worse now. You see this migration and these, which we remind ourselves, for the most part, are not Mexicans. There's just this, this invasion that's going right through Mexico doing its own damage there and then coming to the United States, and, in my judgment at least, doing very bad damage. It's going to be up to the Biden administration to decide what they want to do till now. They have behaved, in my judgment, very, very poorly. And they'll have to live with the, with the political consequences of that.
0: And Ambassador, you mentioned Central America. A lot of people are talking about the Northern Triangle and how to improve the economic conditions in those countries, basically Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, among others, in order to reduce migration flows into the United States. Do you have a view about this? Is there a role for USTR to play or is it really just aid?
1: So so first of all, I've always found this notion to be, and maybe I'm victim of it myself too, this sort of notion to be sort of nutty, to be honest, that somehow if you can just make the Northern Triangle prosperous, something which I think is a long, long long-term prospect, that somehow the problem goes away. But what, the people who espouse that view don't realize is that if you look at a map, you've got Costa Rica, you got Panama, then you have Colombia, then you have Venezuela, then you have Peru, and you can go right on down through to the tip of Brazil, right? So it's not like if you're, oh my goodness, uh, you know, Guatemala is prosperous, no problem, it's ridiculous. Of course, you have, what you have to do is put up a wall. You put up a wall, you stop immigration, then Mexico doesn't have the bloody problem either, right? In other words, the wall north of Mexico helps Mexico south of Mexico. It's a nutty notion that somehow making three countries in the northern triangle slightly more prosperous is going to stop the flow of people all the way from the south, number one. And number two, I do not believe that working class Americans should be less prosperous in order to accomplish that? Why should they give up their prosperity? I mean, working class people, poor people, why should they give that up in order to defend their border? Why shouldn't their border just be defended by their government and have them not have to pay for it? Ambassador, you
0: mentioned ISDS. And in a letter you published in the Wall Street Journal, you compared it to a free political risk insurance. There is absolutely no doubt that Mexico, we need to do a lot to improve our rule of law and even to be able to attract investment. How would you improve that risk-reward environment in Mexico?
1: Well, let me say in the first place, I'll just repeat what I said a couple of times today, and I say over and over again, what Mexico does is Mexican's business. Mexico's got a political system, it functions, and you've got to make your own decisions about where your trade-offs are. There's no question in my mind that that an unpredictable, and I'll use that as a as a euphemism, judicial system combined with too much public corruption is a disincentive to invest in Mexico, just without question. But my objective, once again, I'm not Mexican. My objective is I want Americans to invest in America. I don't want them to invest in Mexico. Mexico wants them to invest in Mexico. So I limited ISDS because I want these people, if they're going to go down there, Americans, and invest, let them calculate the actual cost of an unpredictable, some would say in in some cases unfair, judicial system into their calculation, right? I mean, that's uncertainty. That's one of the things business people have to think about. So I don't want to, in, in a sense, export our judicial system by ensuring that everyone has it around the world, right? So that's one of the real competitive advantages we have. Nobody comes to the United States and thinks they're going to be treated unfairly in our courts, uh, as a matter of course. But it, it clearly is in Mexico's interest, and this is a mexican broadcast that we focus on that but the truth is you go around the world you've got a handful of places where you would say you have an actual fair judiciary just a handful in the whole bloody world it's not a notion that's very common and by the way i would say most of those who have it come from the english tradition right the anglo-saxon tradition that's just just a fact and more people need less corruption and, and fair judicial systems. For sure, that's true. And, but, but it's not just for investment, right? It helps, it helps the, the, the things that I'm talking about. Yeah, prosperity, communities, families, it helps all those things. You need that for all those reasons.
0: Let me move to China. In part because of the US-China trade dispute that Mexico became the number one trading partner of the United States. USMCA has a clause dubbed anti-market, which aims to discourage any party from signing a trade agreement with non-market economies. Were you concerned then, and are you concerned now, about China using Mexico or Canada as a backdoor into the United States?
1: Absolutely. And in the case of, of Mexico, we had seen it. And that's one of the reasons why we changed the rules of origin automobiles and made more be made here. Mexican businessmen could import it from China, do a little this and a little that, ship it up to the United States. The Mexican businessman gets rich. The Mexican worker does not, is not better off and the American worker is also hurt. So we changed that. And in addition, we put in a provision that says, if you do a non-market economy, you have to notify us. And we may very well give notice and get out. If I was in government and Mexico or Canada did such an agreement, my position would be I would go to the president and say, let's stop USMCA for that country. Because we, the purpose of USMCA is really to help North America. And business people will, they you know, they're trying to help their shareholders and, and they'll do whatever they can. they But that's not what politicians and government people should do. We should worry about our own people. And the purpose of USMCA is not to increase imports from China or Vietnam, right? Because I mean, that's another non-market economy that could be affected. So yeah, for sure we put that in there. We put limitations on state-owned enterprises, and we put limitations on doing a deal like that. That would fundamentally change the nature of what we negotiated in USMCA. It would be bad for American workers. I would propose, submit also bad for Mexican and Canadian workers. And if that case, my hope would be the government would, would, would stop that. And then it's Mexico or Canada because uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was talking about it at one point too. And why would they do that deal? The whole purpose of the deal was to use USMCA to import stuff from China. It wasn't really to help Canada or Mexico, right? It really was just purely to be a vehicle to the, to the biggest market in the world. And, and I would hope and I believe that the current government in the United States would, would invoke that and stop it. And certainly if we came back into governance, we would do it for sure.
0: Ambassador, you also mentioned the sunset clause. The USMCA will be reviewed approximately in six years from now. How do you think Congress and the U.S. public should measure USMCA success?
1: Well, your question is how should they? I guess the first is how will they? And how will they is who knows, right? People, uh, If you sell corn and beef in Mexico, and Mexico is a big market for corn and beef for the United States, then you probably are going to judge it based on corn and beef sales, even if the rest of the country goes to hell, right? I mean, that's just how people are going to think about it. How they should do it, they should look upon one, they should say, has it brought about balance? If not just balance, for example, between the United States and Mexico, has it helped our global trade balance? And that should be the kind of way they should think of it on, uh, on, you know, at at one point, a second should be, "Are the new provisions working? the digital trade, the IP are those then the currency are all those new provisions are they working? If not, we should propose, and so should Mexico and Canada modifications and have a negotiation uh, and then finally, they should look and say, "What has changed in the economy that we have to adjust? We have to address in this agreement. Remember, there wasn 't even dial up internet when this thing started right i mean there was Literally, we have cell phones that flipped open. We faxed stuff. I mean, it was literally nothing. It was completely, by today's standards, primitive. So are there new things like that that we have to put rules in to keep someone from taking advantage of the markets? So, you know, to me, those are the kinds of things. What's the effect on U.S. workers? What's the effect on United States agriculture? What's the effect on our global trade situation? Is North America stronger? Are the new provisions working? And then what's, what's different in the economy that we have to address? And then, you know, if we give notice that it's not working, then there's going to be a period of time where you're either going to, there's going to be a lot of pressure to address those things. And I think that's a really, really positive thing. It just, just take a step back, it never made any sense to me that we enter into trade agreements and they're somehow eternal. They're like more important than your constitution. They're more than the most, and they never change. And I would ask businessmen who would promote the notion of them being eternal. I would say, well, do you ever enter into supply contracts that are eternal? Like, well, no, we would never do that. That would be crazy, right? I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's stupid. No trade agreement should last more than a few years. And then if it's working, it should continue. And, but, but the period can't be so short that there's no certainty at all. Right. No one would invest if it was a one year, two year, three year deal. So we tried to meet a, a, a balance there. You can invest, but there's going to be pressure to have this agreement be improved or end if it's not improving. And the case in point would be NAFTA, where it really did get outdated. It just was not it wasn't modern at all. And by its terms, it would continue forever. It's just, it's just not a logical thing, but it's one of those kind of commonly understood things you have to challenge when you sit back and say, does that make sense? And any logical person would say, of course not. Why would anything be eternal like that, right?
0: Why does the U.S. have a stake in Mexico's success? That is, why Mexico matters?
1: The principal reason Mexico matters is what I said before, is the principal advantage after a strong, young a workforce that Mexico has, and that is to say we've got a three thousand mile border. And we have to deal with what goes on in Mexico. And Mexico has to deal with what goes on in the United States. There's a long history there, good and bad, of troops moving back the force of, of problems. If you go to a lot of parts of that of that border, and I'm sure you're far more familiar with it than I am, it, it is seamless cabbages go across lettuce, but i mean it's just it's a seamless border it's in many cases along that border it's one community it's not a Mexican community and an American community it's just the that community, whatever the little town is so So we have a big stake in that, and the other thing I'd say, which I don't think is insignificant, is that we have a large mexican American population. And it's not unreasonable for those people to care about what goes on in Mexico. We look at St. Patrick's Day, the Irish-American population worries about what happens in, in Ireland. Italian-American population worries about what's going on in Italy and so on, right down the line. And, it's, and it's, it's, we have a large Mexican-American population and they're concerned about what happens in their, in, in their country and they have relatives there. And so we, we have a big stake on the prosperity side we can integrate and make each other better off, make each other wealthier. But what you can't do is you can't cherry pick, right? You can't be in a position where you're gonna take the stuff that helps you and not worry about the other things. Because if you do that, then you don't have trust, you don't really have a common market.
0: I fully agree with you. Trust is key to this relationship. Let me ask you one last question probably completely unrelated, but there has been some talk recently about the United Kingdom wanting to be part of USMCA. Is there a mechanism in USMCA to include other countries? And what do you think would be the rationale for the United States to add a non-North American country into this treaty?
1: First of all, any agreement can be modified. They add someone if the parties agree, right? And if the parties don't agree, then you then it probably doesn't happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it would become very complicated. First of all, when you look at just setting aside USMCA, US, UK, the whole rules of origin, the whole business is, is hard to see quite how it works. We have an enormous amount of back and forth trade, an enormous amount of, of investment back and forth between the United States and the UK, and we don't have a trade agreement, right? So what is added to it by a trade agreement, I don't know. But if you, if you think about rules of origin, the Jaguars that come in from, from the UK to the United States, they don't have parts made in Mexico, and they're not likely to have them. Their parts are made in, in Europe. Or in some cases in Asia, but mostly in Europe. That's where their sort of integration is. So I don't know that there may be geopolitical reasons to do it. Why having uh, the UK join this market would make sense, but but you know, to me, whatever happens, they're going to end up much closer in you know, a lot of real manufacturing and other in service areas with Europe. No matter what, that's just their their natural market. They've developed there over decades and decades and decades. So. Economically, someone would have to really make the case from the United States point of view, and for each country they would have to themselves, whether there is some way that we would sell more to the UK if we had such an agreement, if they were part of the USMCA, and we would buy less from somebody else so that it would help our balance, help our own prosperity. I wouldn't do any trade deals based on on some soft geopolitical notion. And I think there are other ways to do that. We have, we have a diplomacy, we have a military, we have foreign aid. There's a lot of ways to deal with those issues. But I wouldn't trade away the prosperity of our workers for any of these sort of geopolitical reasons. So if someone would have to make the case to me that we were going to be better off, and presumably the Mexicans the same thing, it's hard for me to to see maybe they think they would get a Jaguar plant in Mexico, I don't know, to sell in the United States. I, I, I don't know. I'd have, to, I'd have to think about that.
0: Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. Ambassador Lighthizer, I cannot thank you enough for your generosity, for your time, and for your thoughts. I will just close by emphasizing how, in a world in which the notions of free trade, increased efficiencies, and geopolitics are being redesigned, North America has an enormous potential to benefit from these trends. But for Mexico to take part of this opportunity and to benefit from the proximity of being close to the largest economy in the world, we first need to decide what type of country we want to be and prove that we can be a trusted partner that can provide an alternative to production in China. My name is Mariana Campero. Thanks so much for listening.